Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Scott Kelly is president of Encore Search Partners, a specialized recruiting firm that focuses on spotlighting the absolute best professional, technical, and C-level executive talent nationwide. Scott Kelly oversees business development, client services, operations, finance, HR, technology initiatives. Serving as Encore Search Partners integrator, Scott Kelly's expertise in business strategy, strategic planning, and business development has made Encore Search Partners one of the fastest growing recruitment firms in the Houston area. Scott is active in his Vistage Group, the Greater Houston Partnership, the National Business Development Association, the Houston Chapter of the Association of Legal Administrators, and the Greater Houston Manufacturers Association. Outside of the office, Scott Kelly is an avid reader, philanthropist, and mentor to many Houston area professionals. When he isn't working, reading, or mentoring, he enjoys spending time with his family, traveling, and experiences new restaurants. Scott, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Great to be here, Cameron. Yeah, thank you. Um, we're looking forward to this, actually. I remember when I met you, um, God, probably, was it probably three or four months ago now or five months ago? It was before this whole COVID thing sprang up. So it must have been like January or February, I guess. Yeah, I think it was probably January. Back in Houston. You guys have a really interesting model. So um, your company, Encore Search Partners, isn't a traditional search firm. I remember meeting with your CEO and you um, at this entrepreneurs organization speaking event I was doing. And when you walked me through a little bit of your model, I was kind of shocked at how strong it was. Can you just tell us a little bit about the model and, and what Encore Search focuses on? Sure. Yeah. So we, um, our recruiting model is a little different. Like you said, we we work with a lot of uh, producing advisors, producing attorneys, people with a portable book of business, and help them make transitions from firm to firm. Right. So it could be uh, a wirehouse advisor. It could be a uh, a broker dealer advisor. Um, it could be a partner level attorney, but basically what they do is take their clients with them from one firm to another. So we get the candidate first and then go to the, to the firms and say, here's what I have. Do you want to take a look at them? Uh, so it's a little bit different than a traditional recruiting model. Uh, our primary focus today is in the wealth management industry, uh, the legal industry. We do some energy industrial and manufacturing. That's how our firm started, but obviously during the downturn that has uh, shifted a little bit, or I should say during COVID, uh, that has shifted a little bit to the primary industries of legal and wealth. It's interesting because in, in a lot of ways, if I was to put some layman's terms on it, you guys would be focusing on the supply side versus the demand side, right? You're, you're going out and finding all the people that you can place, and then you're just saying, hey, we've got this talent, who wants to buy it? Correct, absolutely. And why has everyone else got it so backwards? Uh, so the traditional recruiting model, right, is you get a, a job order. So you call, you know, cold call potential clients. They tell you what they're looking for, right? And so a lot of recruiting firms do that. Uh, you know, we had to obviously stand out and be different. Um, you know, we it's hard to compete with the people like the Robert Hass of the world that have been in business for, you know, 100 years. Uh, and so we decided that we wanted to be a little bit different. We wanted to be a disruptor. Uh, and so over the last you know, few years since we rolled out EOS, we determined that this is the best way to grow our business. You know, we're a contingency-based recruiting firm, uh, and so we don't have those big retainers or we don't work on contracts for, for our clients. You know, everything is eat what you kill, um, pay for performance, and, and that's the model that we like. And so, you know, this is a way that we've identified, okay, we can be different. 
we could find the top talent on the market and then not just have one opportunity, we could hedge ourselves and create multiple opportunities for each of those candidates that we talk to. What, what I love about it though is like, so whenever I try to find good recruiting firms, I like a, either a blend or somewhere between contingency and retained. I don't, I don't like the full retained, but it, you know, it's often doesn't seem really fair to have somebody on full contingency because they're doing all the work. But for you guys, where you've already got the placement, contingency is easy for you because you're getting paid all you're getting paid completely anyway. Like there's no risk because you've already got the person. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) So, okay. So are we missing something? Like is the industry missing something or have you guys just kind of figured out almost like Tesla figured out, we don't need car dealerships. We don't need all that extra waste. We don't need, you know, forget about the electric vehicle, but they cut out the entire dealer model. And, and, and they don't even have inventory. Like you go on a website and buy the car and it gets delivered and it's perfect. Have you guys just figured out the search industry where nobody else has paid attention? You know, I, I think that going forward, right, because of the volatility in the market, I think that opportunity hires is really that kind of wave of the future um, because people aren't going to be posting these jobs like they normally do. You know, we talked to our firms today, specifically law firms, uh, that aren't going out there recruiting actively. Uh, you know, so when we come to them and say, hey, I've got a partner with a million dollar book of business that is interested in your firm for X, Y, and Z reason, they're like, oh yeah, I'll okay. <laughs> right? They pay for themselves on day one, right? It's like, okay, John, you move over. Tim, you move over. Mark is going to sit right here now, you know, and, that, and that's kind of that model. Whereas, uh, you know, in, in that space, it's really, really easy, but then in others, you know, we can help firms also top grade their talent, right? If they've got a partner in that practice area, that's okay, but hasn't proven to do business development and grow their book, we could just say, okay, we're going to go, let's bring in this person now. Oh my gosh, you even go to firms that aren't looking, you've already got a candidate ready to jump into a seat. The firm isn't really sure they need to hire somebody, but you show them they've got a couple of B's and C's, and if they replace them with the A, they win. Exactly. You guys are like the firing squad as well as the hiring squad. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. It's like, it's like, but unemployment doesn't go down because you've got a new person coming in right away. So it's kind of right back to equilibrium. Right. I still don't understand why nobody else is doing that. Are others, are there other companies in the industry doing this? You know, I'm sure there are, um, you know, specifically in the wealth management industry, that's kind of this all kind of got started for us is we just took that model and then started doing it in other areas, right? Where do yeah. people, Look at business, you know, investment banking, commercial lending, you know, sales in, in any industry, you know, technical sales folks, people that people want to hire from their competitors, but in some industries where it's super close knit, they don't want to be the one picking up the phone and calling the guy down the street trying to recruit them because they have a friendly handshake agreement or things like that where they won't coach out. And so they use people like us and we come to them and say, hey, we've already got the guy. They, they're interested in you. Do you want to talk to them? You guys are like the virtual bench. Just you kind of walk in and go, here's who we've got. So how do you, how do you find these people? How do you find the people to start placing? Is it, is it similar to the normal recruiting or is it different? So once again, a little different. So we, we hire cold callers and we have cold callers that call producing advisors at their desk. Um, you know, they're making between 750 and a thousand outbound dollars a week. I've got two people making 1500 calls a week plus. Wow. Uh, and they're getting folks there, you know, of those 1500 calls, uh, one gentleman wrote up seven advisors last week. And one of my uh, female recruiters, she wrote up six advisors last week. 
Uh, and we do the same thing for attorneys, right? So we cold call attorneys, we cold call advisors. Um, and that's kind of how we get people, they, you know, on the hook. And, you know, our pitch is pretty simple, right? You know, especially to, to the attorneys. It's, we're acting as your agent, right? You don't need, you don't have time to go out to the market and see what's out there. We'll take down your information. We'll confidentially share things uh, with our clients that don't have any identifiers for you, whether it's your name, your, your school, you know, year of graduation. We'll share any of that information. Just generalized statements about you, your book of business, what your practice area is, uh, and see who would have any interest. We'll come back to you, pitch those opportunities to you, and then you decide the right fit. You know, we may have between two and 10 opportunities. You may pick three to five of those uh, and say, on, we get two to three offers and then they pick the right opportunity for their clients and for themselves. Amazing. It's a really, really clean, clean model too. So tell us, I mean, you've probably got some really good insights as to why great people leave. I've, I've you know, again, been on stages and you saw me speak to a, a large group of entrepreneurs and COOs. Um, I've been done, done speaking events all over the world. And one of the things I keep telling these groups is that if you don't have your A players handcuffed to your company, Guys like me will come and poach them and I do it for fun because yeah. I, what I always say is a great, you know, an A player should never be working for an average company. Is that yeah. kind of how you approach it as well? You look for the A players and you go, look, you're working for someone that's average. We can find better. Or is it, what do you pitch them with? You know, what's funny is in some of these industries, right, they may be a B player, but they have a big book of business whether they inherited it. Uh, like a father son team, the father retired and the son took over the book. We see that a lot. Uh, and so they end up, they could be a, an average player, but because of their book size, firms still want them, right? Because they're bringing in that guaranteed revenue. And so in that aspect, yes. Now in the traditional recruiting world, where you're filling job order for clients, uh, you do, we do go after those eight players. Mm. And sometimes we, you know, what we've found is we're able to identify eight players before they even know they're eight players, right? And so, you know, whenever I talk to clients, they say, I want to find you. I want to find the Scott from 2016 when he joined Encore Search Partners, not the Scott of 2020, right? And so then we start identifying what those key things are, uh, and, and then we'll go to market and, and find those things. So do you, do you at times then um, have companies that put you under more of the typical contingency search model where you show up with one candidate, but they say they need four more, and now you're going out to look for that talent? Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, that's still part of our business. It's not, uh, we haven't completely eliminated that. Sure. We have our traditional book of business ourselves of, of clients that we've amassed over the years um, where they come to us and say, hey, we need to find another whatever. And, and we'll go to market and still search for those. So we have about two or three recruiters right now working full time on that. Now, what about outside of your of your niche? I mean, how focused are you? If you trip across a, you know, a second in command for a technology company that you meet somewhere, and you know, you realize that person needs to be placed in a better company, are you going to go out and try and, and find that person a home, or are you pretty loyal to the niche that you're in? Pretty, pretty loyal to the niche we're in, right? And so, you know, if we we come into a second in command, you know, the unfortunate thing is, and I and I'm that guy, right? We're we're viewed as a a you know costs suck, not really, we don't really add a whole lot of value necessarily to the organization from a, from a CEO standpoint, right? You know, they know they need us to run the business. However, uh, you know, we don't walk in with a book of business, right? And right. So, okay. So there has to be an opening. And so it is harder to do that with someone from an operations, finance, things like that. It's harder to, to do the same model that we do with the uh, producers. 
uh, just because there's a finite number of roster spots out there for the second. That makes sense. So you're selling the book of business in addition to the person that's carrying it. How do you get around the non-competes and the non-solicitation? Or I guess no non-solicit, but how do you get around the non-competes? Yeah, so you know, in the wealth management industry, there's protocol and non-protocol firms, and basically the firms agreed that they're going to stop suing each other um, because the only people getting rich were the attorneys. And so if they make those transitions, then uh, they're allowed to come with them. Amazing. Uh, and, and then in the, in the legal industry, we haven't seen a lot of issues around non-competes, right? Some of the biggest issues we do run into is when they're uh, going through due diligence before they make a transition with their book. Yeah, I think that's what's really cool is, is you're actually identifying pretty early on if the conflicts are there. But I love that the industry has cleaned itself up, or not cleaned itself up, but the industry has realized like no one's winning except the lawyers. Let's just stop it. I, I was coaching a CEO the other day on this and he had an employee quit to go to another firm and then he lost a second employee that was going to, to another firm and he was really mad at the employees for doing it and he was going to like sue them for breach or whatever. And I'm like, dude, what's the point? Like, you're not going to get them back. You don't want them back. You're not going to win because they don't have any money. So you're going to wait. And then you got all this negative energy and time. It's just like, it doesn't make any sense. Just go find another person. All right. Specifically, it's hard to win a non-compete type lawsuit anyway. Yeah, very hard to win for sure. So, okay. Now you guys are, are doing recruiting. You've got a couple of industries that you're pretty big in. And then all of a sudden this whole COVID hits your industries and, and the oil and gas, because you you were pretty big in the oil and gas sector as well, being based in Houston. What have you had to do to work around those issues? Yeah. So, you know, one, once everything kind of got serious, I should say, right, here, here in Houston, they did the mandatory stay-at-home, you know, work-home, stay-safe order that the uh, county judge rolled out. Uh, you know, we were looking at our clients that were all putting things on hold, right? We had Fortune 100 industrial manufacturing energy clients that are like, okay, we're on a hiring freeze. And then they all, you know, announced major layoffs after that. And so uh, basically we saw, you know, overnight, 40% of our clients completely disappear, right? From the job orders and things that we traditionally recruited on in that space. And so at that point, we completely, you know, Jeremy and myself, our EVP of our financial uh, financial search group, we, we got together and said, okay, what are we gonna do? Uh, and we decided to pivot our employees into other areas. And so we did virtual remote coaching and training and, and you know, built call lists and, and got our team working within two or three days in other areas. And so we were able to pivot pretty quickly. Uh, and uh, for those 60-ish days that we were at home, um, we were able to have high productivity, even though these folks were completely new to it. They didn't know what they were talking about, um, but we didn't allow uh, people to sit there and twiddle their thumbs with the computer screen and not know what to do. We were always engaged with them saying, hey, what's going on? How's these calls going? We would listen to their calls and do coaching sessions for the whole team based off of call recordings that we were listening to, things like that. And so uh, we were able to do a lot um, pretty quickly and, and not really skip a beat, honestly. You know, we built our biggest pipeline we've ever had in company history during the COVID months while we were working from home. You know, we walked back into the office in June. Pipeline of, of potential employees, right? Of, of potential placements, right? Or, or deals, what we call deals over 70% to close. We're just waiting on start date or waiting on, uh, something along those lines. Uh, and so that was our biggest pipeline we'd ever had coming back into the office in June. And so, you know, we were, we were able to thrive and not just survive during this time. 
Is there an industry that you would like to break into? Is there a vertical that you'd want to start selling to? Yeah, so we're looking right now. Uh, we just hired a individual who, uh, she, she's a very young talent. She put herself through a sales training program um, and paid $10,000 out of her pocket to, to learn how to sell and learn the psychologies of sales. And so we're using her to break into the uh, CPA market, right? So uh, you know, working with CPA firms, they all, it's very similar to the wealth management industry. It's very similar to law firms. Once you get to that kind of manager partner level, uh, you amass a book of business and that book of business can follow you from one firm to another. Uh, and so working with this space is something that we are looking to do. So audit, uh, you know, tax audit, assurance, things like that. Um, so that's kind of a space we're looking to break into now. Uh, and so we're going to use her to do that same process of going out, finding the candidates and then, uh, going in and going to the clients and saying, Hey, I've got this. Do you want to buy it? Interesting. Okay. I want to back up and, and just talk about the sales process for a second that you use. Cause you touched on something that I almost skipped over, but I want to go back to, and it was around the cold callers. And I think I hired a cold caller 22 years ago for a, a barter company that I was running. And this guy was a really unique character. Like he just liked to pick up the phone and was totally fine with getting it slammed in his face. Yeah. That is that a dying breed of person or where do you find good cold callers and what do you market to find them? What's their DNA? What do they look and feel like? And I would, I would love to tell you that we have that recipe down hundred percent. You know, it, it's hard. Um, you know, we've, we've got folks that are all over the, uh, a gentleman that started with us, the, the guy that's making 15 to 1700 calls a week. He, he has a master's degree, uh, and was a college professor at university of Houston downtown. Um, I've got another, uh, young lady that's making 13 to 1500 calls a week. And she was a swim instructor at a, at a swim academy in, in Katy, Texas. And, you know, one was a, a sales rep at uh, vitamin world and a mattress firm store manager. And I mean, just all over the place. There's not like a one like recipe for success. We could always find this. Um, the one thing that I found though, is all people that had very intelligent, um, they have the desire to, to succeed. They're incredibly competitive just in the wrong industry. You know, they, they didn't understand uh, what recruiting was or no one really gave them a shot at it. Um, you know, for the most part, a lot of the folks that we have in our, in our business today, none of them came from recruiting firms. We homebrew every single one of our, our recruiters, uh, you know, from property management companies, you know, hospitality industry, you name it, and women's healthcare, we found good A players that are just in the wrong industry. Huh. You know, Jeremy has got a great way of spotlighting that talent uh, via LinkedIn and, and, you know, whether it's through Facebook, we'll put a post up and we'll get, you know, messages on Facebook on our, on our company Facebook page about people that are looking for this type of opportunity, but we're very brutally honest. We yeah. tell them you're going to make a thousand calls of those thousand. You're going to get two to two to five yeses. Are you so, okay. So, so you're really, really setting them up with the expectations and then this is getting a little bit tactical and then we'll jump back up now into kind of the COO world again, the president world. But, um, how do you get them to stay on the picking up the phone versus just spamming people with email or sales navigator, LinkedIn messages? It was funny when, when we first started getting into this kind of cold calling, like aggressively cold calling, we, we, as the leadership team saying, let's just turn off their email. <laughs> they don't need it. Why do they need email? They just, they just need a phone and the list uh, Excel spreadsheet in front of them. Right. And so, uh, but no, you know, that, that is a hard thing, especially when folks have been here for a long time. 
So we've got a couple of producers uh, that have been this kind of cold calling for two plus years. And that's when it really starts to kind of like, what's next? Like, it's really hard to keep making a thousand calls every single week, right? Uh, so that's where we start running that kind of challenge. At first, we show them this is the only way to do it. They come in and do it. And then they start seeing success. You know, we have uh, an individual that in her first full year, you know, made over $100,000 making a thousand cold calls a week. Are you guys doing anything with marketing and marketing automation? Are you doing anything where you're positioning and saying, hey, like, we've got these jobs, come to us? So we do. Uh, we do some. We have some email marketing campaigns that do cadenced emails. Uh, you know, Jeremy is a marketing expert. That's what he, he started this business, Market Share Solutions. Uh, he started a marketing firm first and was doing email campaigns uh, to, to, to do business development for other firms. Um, and then he, you know, realized how big the recruiting fees were and just cut out that middleman and said, okay, we're going to do it for ourselves. Uh, and so that's how we kind of became a recruiting firm. Uh, but, you know, I, we do it. It's not as successful, right, as picking up the phone, especially in those industries that I was talking about in the legal and wealth management space. Picking up the phone beats an email every day of the week. Okay. Yeah, it really does for sure. And I, it's interesting that you guys are focused on it. All right. So talk to me a little bit about Jeremy. That guy is wickedly high energy. I mean, I remember meeting him very briefly at this event. He's like a 10 out of 10 or an 11, right? Turn it up to 11 um, on energy. Um, how do you get on the same page with his vision and how do you keep him in his sandbox and allow him to play and be the entrepreneur while you kind of operationalize his ideas? Yeah, so, you know, obviously rolling out EOS helps a lot with that, right? And showing him, okay, here's your role, here's what you do, here's my role, here's what I do, right? Here's all of our people, here's what they do, right? And so he, he has always been the catalyst to get everything going, right? He's been the business development guy, he's the idea guy, he builds the list, he builds the pitch, he does it all. Uh, and through this process of rolling out EOS, we identified what our three-year vision looks like and the 10-year vision uh, and, and, you know, what everything that we're trying to accomplish. We said, okay, here's what we need from Jeremy. Here's what we need from Scott. Here's what we need from Casey. And here's what we need from everybody else. Uh, and, you know, Jeremy is such high energy. He has, he has a lot of great ideas. And, and we do most of his ideas. We try them out, right? And we'll never... You know, I'll never disagree with him publicly on an idea. Of course, uh, Casey and I are 100% supportive of him because we can do these little things and not, you know, change the direction of the boat, so to speak. And so we're, we we can test those things out. And then once he says, and, and usually what's great about Jeremy is he's such a hands-on CEO that when he comes up with an idea, he'll go and do it himself and he'll be the beta test. Like he's not going to take somebody and say, Hey, stop doing this. I need you to try this for me real quick. He does it himself. You know, he's not afraid to get in the weeds and, and do the work. And so whenever he has those ideas, he'll go and do it. It doesn't impact the rest of the team. The boat's still moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great idea. Here, come look at this guy. And we talk about it, and then we come up with the process of how to roll it out and who should be doing it and how we're going to do it and what the messages are going to be. We'll completely just whiteboard it from there. Yo, yo, what? Sorry? We'll whiteboard it from there and right. say, okay, this is what we're going to do. What's the, um, what part of the business do you run? What parts does he still run? Yeah, so Jeremy primarily does all the sales functions of the business. I'm the sales manager of the business. <laughs> Look at the accountability chart. Jeremy reports to me in the sales capacity. Um, but I primarily focus on operations, finance, accounting. As a sales manager, I do all the meetings individually with the recruiters. 
Um, you know, we're a relatively flat organization. Um, and so we've, we hired our first sort of mid-level manager uh, who's growing into that role. You know, she's not fully in it today, um, but I think she'll be able to peel off a lot of uh, some of the things that I do with the recruiters individually. But today, uh, I still hold that hat. Um, but because we're a flat organization, you know, I'm literally on calls with recruiters uh, doing client update calls or I'm doing candidate update calls with them uh, when things kind of get sticky. Uh, but Jeremy handles all of the sales, you know, inbound calls from prospective clients to all of our outbound uh, campaigns that we run, they ring back to him. Uh, and so that's what he loves to do. He loves to, to get on the phone and close deals. You know, Jeremy and I always talk about why we're such a good team is because what motivates Jeremy is winning and what motivates me is being the best. And so we pair those two together and then we just have right. this two headed monster that's just aggressive and, and, but, but follows policies and procedures and those kind of things. Yeah. The stuff that needs to happen. So you guys, um, certainly a great team. How did you get involved in the organization? Did you grow up in the company? I did not No. So I was actually in Vistage with Jeremy. We were in a Vistage group together. Uh, and we were the youngest guys in the group by far. So obviously we kind of connected a little, a little easier than others. And, uh, you know, Jeremy was complaining about his, his business one day, we were in his backyard drinking beers and he just needed a vent. I came over and we were drinking a few beers by the, by the fire pit. And he was telling me, you know, all these things that are so bad about the business and why he's so frustrated. And I was like, man, how much money did you lose? He's like, what are you talking about? I made a lot of money last year. And and I was like, man, you're accidentally making money. And I was like, just you could put in policy, uh, policies and procedures and processes and, and have a system for everything, like how much more successful you can be. And so we sat there in, in his backyard and he kind of looked like this funnel in his hands instead of this is what I'm doing today and dollars are slipping out the bottom. I need somebody to come in and kind of bring that together and cut the dollars and, and help me get that, right? And so, uh, and, and then, probably two or three months later we met again and then he, he made me an offer. And so we just met through Vistage uh, and, you know, I came in the team, uh, came onto the team in 2016 as a vice president uh, about six or seven months later was promoted to senior vice president, kind of took over all of operations um, and, and was running that and then became EVP and COO a year and a half later ish. And then very similar to how Brian and I got involved in, in the organization or in, in uh, 1-800-GOT-JUNK was he and I were in an EO forum group together for four years and then he wanted me to coach him and started coaching him and one of his team and he's like, hey, this isn't going to work. You just need to come and do this. I don't know how to do this. Um, how has the company changed in the time you've been there? Yeah, so when I started, we were, we were about, well, I'm going to say seven or eight guys in a in an industrial park out in Richmond, Texas. It was very, um, very interesting. It was a hallway type office. We had a garage uh, and we actually had three recruiters that were cold callers in the garage uh, with very limited AC. Uh, and it was just, you know, a bunch of guys. It was almost like a fraternity, right? And then, you know, I said, this is one way to do the business, but if we want to scale and grow this, we need to really think bigger, right? So we moved into an office in the in, uh, energy corridor here in Houston uh, so we're like, I can see BP out my window, outside my office window right now. Um, you know, so we moved to the, to the energy corridor. We said, let's hire and recruit in top talent, right? We want to find better people. Not that our people weren't good. It's just that you know, when you look at the folks that we had back, they got us to where we were, but they're not going to get us to where we need to go. And so we, we moved into a nicer office. Uh, we started, we hired our first female employee in the office ever. 
Um, and then we've continued to grow. And today we probably have 45, 46% female uh, employees. Uh, and we have a ton of young, talented people that would never imagine driving out to Richmond, Texas. They all live inside the loop here in Houston. Uh, and so we, that's how we've been able to grow a lot. Mm. Is those good people. But uh, so change, we were all 1099 in the past. I brought everyone to W2. We rolled out health benefits. We rolled out 401k. Uh, you know, we've done a lot to become that sort of real company uh, in, in as opposed to just kind of bootstrapping. Now, what about during this whole um, COVID time? Did you guys have to go remote? Yeah, we all went remote. Uh, we all went remote for about 60 days. Um, and that was interesting. You know, it's one of those things that we had all the technology. We, we already had Zoom uh, that I was using for, for some of my meetings through, through Vistage um, and for our uh, accountability team meetings. And then we had teams rolled out in, internally as well. And so uh, we were able to communicate everybody real time. We have, we have a great phone system, a lot of still remote. All of our uh, software packages are all in the cloud. And so we didn't skip a beat from any of that perspective. It was, it was more so missing that camaraderie, missing the team building. Uh, and, and for me as the president, you know, I do a lot of 60-second coaching. And so when I'm walking through the halls, it'll sometimes take me 15 minutes or 20 minutes to get from one side of the office to the other because I'm stopped along the way. Mm. And went away when we were going remote and so i had to really reach out to individuals and kind of dread out of them that normally i would just get hey do you have a second hey do you have a second um and so i think that that was one of the things that was the hardest part about being remote was not getting that so you're clearly not going to go to a being a remote-based company you're going to come back and stay full location-based yeah so we do have folks that work remote and, and the unfortunate thing for those people is there's very limited upward mobility within our organization because we're so collaborative, because we're so hands-on. Uh, we like to do full meeting debriefs. We like to kind of get together and, and do those things. And so we do have a place for people to work remote. And there are uh, about five people working remote right now. Um, but there's just not going to be a lot of upward mobility potential for those folks because of how we're structured and how we do things inside the office. How about your skill set? How have you had to grow and, and um, you know, as you kind of position from EVP and COO now into the president role, how have you had to continue to work on your skills? Yeah, so I, you know, I meet with a uh, executive coach. Um, I have my Vistage chair. I have my accountability team through Vistage. Uh, I go to a lot of the EO events. You know, I read a lot, you know, and so I'm, I'm constantly focused on developing you know, my skill sets and, and I, I like to read, I do more targeted reading. And so if I'm having an issue with an employee, for instance, I'll pick up a book that's, you know, something uh, I'm actually reading a lot of potential right now um, in, in how to, how to uh, coach people and find their individual skill sets and, and, and transform them into a, a, that higher potential person. Good for you. And you're one of the rare individuals I've met um, who actually f understands targeted reading. I've got a, a client that I coached years ago. I led their strategic planning five years in a row. He took his company from about 100 million top line to about 800 million top line in the five years that I ran their planning meetings. 36-year-old CEO in, in Switzerland. And basically what he does is he thinks about the stuff he's working on this quarter. And then he mm -hmm. goes and reads as much content about that stuff as he can. And it, it, I don't understand why people are like, oh, I read a book a week. Well, that's stupid. Like reading a book a week about what? Random shit that's going to cause you stress and add stuff to your to-do list. Why don't you read about what you're working on like you're doing and then, you know, at least apply it. It's not about just reading. It's about applying some of what you're reading. Yeah. So like we, uh, we had our executive planning session on Friday. Uh, and so we were meeting and we were writing out our vivid vision. 
right? And so I actually look back here behind me, uh, and so I read Vivid Vision ahead of that, and then you know we rolled out the the Vivid Vision here, and and, and so we were we were going through that process at our executive planning session Friday. But I wanted to make sure that I knew what I was talking about before we did. It works. So you've been involved with a couple of coaches as well. Talk to us about how a coach or a Vistage chair, which is a coaching role as well. How do you extract the most value from a coaching relationship? You know, I, the biggest thing for me is not being afraid to actually get feedback. You know, so many people are getting feedback. They go to a coach just to kind of, you know, pat them on the back saying, you're doing a good job, buddy. And, and a lot of people are so focused on, uh, you know, what's in it for them and, and instead of how they could take what they learn and give it out to others. And so for me, you know, what's made me the most successful in my coaching relationship with my business chair is we have conversations about me and what's going on with me, but it's more so catered around how am I failing my people? How am I failing? Whether it's, it could be my business group, like I'm not giving enough to my group. It could be my team here. It could be my family. No matter what it is, I'm open to that look you in the eyes and just, you know, give you that God's honest truth, that, you know, brutally honest, you know, cards on the table type truth. And that's, that's, a, that's, what that, that's a pretty big step for an executive to focus on their weaknesses and focus on their gaps. So what, what allows you to feel okay with doing that versus either getting defensive or, you know, I mean, most entrepreneurs strive to get more praise and it sounds like you don't look for more praise. You look for more constructive criticism. How have you been able to do that and still feel the confidence? So what's funny is Jeremy and I always joke about that because he's so words of affirmation in the workplace. Right, of course. Not, I'm the opposite of that. And I always say, oh, he always tells me, oh, you're doing such a good job. Fantastic. I can't believe you thought of this. Wow. But he says all those things. I'm like, oh, those meaningless words. <laughs> what are, and what are you, quality time and acts of service? I'm quality times and acts of service all yeah. day. And so, and so <laughs> you know, for me, I, I actually hate, I feel so uncomfortable when I get public praise. It, yeah really, really uncomfortable. I'd rather somebody tell me I'm doing bad at something because then I can identify what I need to improve on, right? When someone just gives you all this praise, the bar is set higher, but you don't really know where it's at. Yeah. The best, the best praise for you is going to, the best praise for you is going to be to give you a big project and let you run it. Exactly. Right. Cause then you, then it's like, wow, this guy just like believes in me. It's like this silent kind of like, holy shit moment. Like if Jeremy was to, to buy a company and hand it to you and say, here, integrate this thing, you'd be like, yes, the best praise ever. Right. Like this big, huge gnarly project that I get to run with. So we just, we just touched on the love languages, um, which a lot of people, you know, might've, might've just heard, you know, you said, um, um, words of affirmation that I mentioned the, the acts of service and quality time. The other two are, um, physical touch and, uh, yes. gifts, gifting. Yeah. So do you guys focus on, on understanding the love languages for all your employees as well? I do. So, uh, so I've, I've read the five languages of love and then also the five languages of appreciation in the workplace. And so I actually bought the test for our employees to take. And so I understand what motivators are there for each, each individual here. And so for some people that gifts is really high up there, you know, I've taken team members to Rockets game. We sat courtside, you know, I've, I've given folks gift cards to restaurants so they can take their spouse out and things like that. Um, you know, we do public praise. Part of our weekly uh, level 10 sales meeting is we do a great board. And so for those folks that are really motivated by public praise or public recognition, 
we'll, we'll do that. And so, you know, I want to make sure I understand exactly what makes everybody tick that's around me. And so anyone that's ever been in a romantic relationship with me, they got to take the love language test. But, you know, Jeremy and I fully understand each other's love languages and what we're looking for. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's one of those things that help us be more successful. Is, it's is great. Putting yeah. us all together. And, 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 and so when I look at my, you know, the company, we do a, a quarterly survey of our employees for satisfaction. And, you know, it was 12 of our 18 people that took the survey this last time. Um, said family was the, one of the three words that you used to describe our culture. And 16 of the 18 said competitive. Hopefully the, hopefully the 12 didn't come from like, you know, abusive family backgrounds, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, they came out of the, they came out of foster homes or something. Um, that's a weird joke. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> what was the five workplace ones called? Uh, so it's very similar. There's still words of affirmation. There's still quality time. No, what was the test called though? Uh, I'd have to find it for you. I don't have it on hand. It's pretty darn transferable though. I mean like physical touch in the workplace yeah. is just a pat on the back or a hug when they come in, right? Exactly. High five things. High like fives. That. Yeah. 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 It doesn't, it's not like you're sitting in. Yeah, I get it. Um, there's also the five apology languages. Have you heard about that one? It's how people like to be apologized to. I have not actually. That's, it's, that's it's really interesting. Like I think about that. It's like, how does someone like to be apologized to? It's like, Ooh, that's kind of interesting too. I love these personality profiles because it teaches you how to work better with the other people. Um, yeah. Do you use Do you use any other personality profiles in the business? So we've used. Uh, I use Profile XT. Um, so when people are on that lead track, I'll use the Profile XT. Um, I've used the Colby Index A as well. Um, you know, obviously, is the the EOS preferred test. I believe Col Colby is one of those. What's your What's your Colby? Uh, so mine is, I can't remember the first one, what the exact word was, but it's a eight. It was an eight. I'm very, I'm moderate quick start. It was six in quick start. I'm two in the, the hands-on and I forgot the second one. It was like a seven or eight. So, so you're like eight, seven, six, two. Yeah. So you're a high fact finder. You ask lots of questions, then you put systems in place. I do. And what's Jeremy, a very high third number? Yeah. Is he, he like, is he like four, three, nine, three? Uh, I think he was a one for the last one, but yeah, four, three, nine, four, three, nine, one. So yeah, Colby's really interesting. The only thing you learn from Colby is how you start or initiate projects. Right. And, um, right. we have every member of our COO Alliance does the Colby profile and they all line up very similar to you, very high first or second number. And then yeah. we have all their CEOs do it as well. And all their CEOs are like four, three, nine, three. So it's really, yeah. so we, we teach them how to work better with each other. I think there's so much to be learned in these personality profiles for sure. Last, last two questions. You mentioned the level 10 meetings. So you guys have clearly um, dug in with EOS with traction and Gino Wickman is uh, a member of strategic coach, which is where, where Colby got a lot of their um, promotions from. So I know Gino through strategic coach and through the genius network. What is it that you like about EOS traction and how have you kind of iterated and made the systems your own? Yeah, so, you know, we didn't use an integrator. Um, so I, I self-implemented EOS. Um, I, I had done something similar in the past at a previous company and, and, and seen how it works. So I was able to pull pieces of it. Um, you know, we've rolled out most of the toolbox, I would say. Um, but, you know, the thing that, that it really helped us is just kind of put that clarity around what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. Um, you know, before we rolled out EOS in 2017, we didn't have core values on the day. We didn't have a vision statement. We didn't really have any of those things. And so it was 
he accidentally made money and we wanted to go from accidentally making money to intentionally making money. And so that's really what we did. And, and through that process, you know, we were able to, in, in 2019, we did 201 direct hire placements. In 2020, we did, a, I'm sorry, in 2018, we did two, 201 uh, direct hire placements. In 2019, we did 176 direct hire placements. We did a million more in revenue. Because of EOS, we were able to target the right things and identify what areas were going to be the most successful for us and do, do less and get more, right? And, uh, you know, that's really helped us kind of streamline everything. And, and now because of the core values, we have a really great HR process for recruiting and hiring our own, own, own team members because, you know, whenever you're in the industry and sometimes we, we forget about ourselves and how to handle our stuff, right? we're more focused on our clients and how they do things. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we hire, coach, and fire to the core values. And every single time someone's left this organization, it's because they violated one of those core values. Interesting. And that's a great reason to be getting rid of people too. When they don't read the core values, they don't just get to sit and say, sorry. It's like, if you keep breaking the core values, you don't get to come play here anymore. Exactly. And the yeah. government government's always hiring, so they can go work there. <laughs> and they're adding more jobs every day. <laughs> All right. So Scott Kelly, if you go back to your 22 year old self, you know, your 21 year old self, you're just graduating from college and you're getting ready to go off on your own, or you're just getting ready to start off in your career. What words of advice would you give your 21 year old self that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then? You know, I think that for me, it's, it's enjoying the, enjoying the journey, right? So there's this great, great quote by Kobe Bryant. And he talks about this, is, you know, the, the prize isn't the end of the road. It's the prize is the journey. Greatness is what goes on in between, you know, taking the time to really enjoy every single step of the process. You know, whenever I had to wake up super early to get ready for a meeting or stay super late to prepare for a meeting or, or whenever I was behind in work and I had to put in extra hours and, you know, didn't sleep much and, and was just growing my career to really appreciate that time. You know, it, it was like, I was, I was almost trying to fast forward maybe some. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm kind of that borderline millennial where I technically fit in by age, but I'm not really a millennial. Um, you know, I think that the advice that I would give to any 22, 23 year old now is slow down. You can't, uh, you know, you can't learn everything in a textbook and that, you know, you really need experience. And, and so really learn the experiences, learn from the experiences you have and, and, and take soak all that in. You know, I think that I got to where I am because I carried the CEO's briefcase uh, and because of that, I, I was able to, to learn so much more about business than I ever could in school, you know? And so I, I think that that advice that I would give is really, really enjoy those moments. Take, take kind of a step back and say, okay, what did I learn today? And how can I apply this going forward more often? Obviously I did that because I am where I am today. Um, but I think I could have got there maybe a little bit faster or, or, you know, even prevented some of the mistakes that I've made here. Um, just by thinking back, it's like, oh man, I, I've already experienced this eight years ago, why did I let this happen again? You know, if I, if I would have reflected a little more back in the day, I, I could have been a lot of, of things from happening. That's awesome. Scott Kelly, president and second command for Encore Search Partners. Thanks so much for joining us on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.